You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. It's, um, it's a privilege to come and share with you this morning. Usually when uh, you get a message from a pastor during the week that says, uh, I'm not feeling well, would you like to come and share? What you do is you delve into the bank of messages that you've prepared earlier and uh, you just pull out one. Dave mentioned that you guys were in the middle of a series um, around the holidays about encounters with Jesus. And um, so I landed in this space where I've had a bit of thought around discipleship recently and I wanted to pull some of those thoughts together and, um, and we were reflecting on them last week at Strategic Mission Week uh, in a whole bunch of different conversations. So I'm going to try and land something in that space. So can you bear with me? Okay, sounds good. Let's do some learning together. I want to begin with a quote that's going to come up on the screen, and I'm going to work out how to use this thing as we go. And it says, we have a discipleship problem because we teach people that church is somewhere you go on the weekend instead of the identity of God's people on the go with Jesus. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I think we should read that again. We have a discipleship problem because we teach people that church is somewhere you go on the weekend instead of the identity of God's people on the go with Jesus. This recovery of an all-of-life commitment to following Jesus is what motivated Ainsley and myself uh, to start H3O Church uh, with a group of other people. And yes, our name is a little bit weird. And yes, it did pop up on uh, a website of weirdest church names, uh, which I wore with pride. Um, But H3O um, meant something to us. It defined us as a community. For us, it was more than just church on a Sunday, instead it was about this this holistic all-of-life faith, about engaging uh, and connecting with God, his mission, and the people and the world that he has created with our heads on, our hearts on, and our hands on. This desire to live from our identity as God's people on the go um, with Jesus just trickled down through everything that we did, including the way that we understood and practiced discipleship. What I've come to learn is that your culture and practice around discipleship will either propel people in the mission of God or it will put pressure on weekend attendance. In the West, our linear um, view and understanding of time means that we are outcome-oriented. And the outcomes that we tend to look for in church have been reduced to bums and budgets or weekly attendance and giving. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, really famous verse says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And this is from the, uh, the common NIV translation. And in the Greek, this instruction from Jesus to his disciples contains an imperative verb, which is a command. And then there's three participle clauses. The imperative verb tells them what to do. Disciple. And the participle clauses tells them how to do it. Going, baptizing, teaching. Can you pick up what's missing there? Healing. Yes, that's missing from there. But the word make. You can't make a disciple like you make an object. You can only disciple. 
It's, it's a verb like run, dance, or skip. This command from Jesus is focused on the ongoing process of discipling rather than on the outcome of a disciple. And I believe that this focus on the outcome to make disciples has reduced discipleship to a production line, whereby a weekly church service becomes the warehouse for storing the the finished or the ready-made products. Churches work really hard at these discipleship pathways that lead to their Sunday gatherings, only to find the people in the pews getting stale and passing their expiry date. So how can you create a culture of discipleship that continues to meet people where they're at and propel them into the mission of God? That's what I want to unpack. I think first we need to understand and respond to the reality that humans, that we people, exist in context. What do I mean by that? When you go to the doctors or any other medical professional, in diagnosing and treating your condition, they will ask you um, questions about a range of, of seemingly unrelated topics. An example of this recently, I hurt my back and I went to the osteopath and he asked me about my job. Sore back, job. He asked me to describe an average workday, what my workstation was, if I was stressed at work at the moment, or anything like that. I'm sure you've experienced that too, yeah? When you, far from seeing this as odd or an invasion of our um, personal lives, we've come to expect people in these medical professions to understand and treat the whole person. And this approach to health is known as the socio-ecological model. It worked. And it, it considers an individual within their context. And it acknowledges the personal and the environmental uh, factors that are at play. So ecology is the relationship between organisms and their environment. The word ecology has its uh, roots in the Greek word oikos, meaning house or environment. So how does this relate to discipleship? When approaching uh, the topic and the practice of discipleship, I think it's fundamental that we realise that individuals exist in context. This dynamic interplay of personal and environmental factors. And these environmental factors include uh, their, their values, their beliefs, their habits. It includes their relational networks, their friends, their family. It includes the community, their organisation, their workplace, their church and society as a whole, the cultural norms, the policies, the legislation, that when we understand an individual that they exist in context. And the Apostle Paul acknowledges the reality of these environmental factors in Romans 12 too, doesn't he? When he says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He acknowledges that there are these environmental factors at play. And whether it's, co- it's conscious or not, I'm sure you're aware of these socio-ecological dynamics in your own life. And you, you may have even experienced them. Uh, someone who's following Jesus but has um, a partner at home that didn't sign up for this way of life. Or a child from a Christian family who feels pressure from their peers that hold to a different belief system or worldview. A Christian professional who wrestles with what it means to follow Jesus in, um, in the workplace. 
the ethics and the morality of what that looks like. A society where Christians contend with what it means to follow Jesus with regards to certain legislation, cultural norms and and public policy. Relational community and societal factors have an incredible influence on our lives as disciples, don't they? And that these things don't happen independent of one another, but that they're dynamic and they flow between, which is why I've kind of created dotted lines between them. Because our family, our social networks, they exist in communities and within society, and they have particular beliefs and habits. To deal with the complexities of life in our postmodern age, the Western individual has become great at compartmentalising. We have privatised values and beliefs and habits, disconnecting them from our relationships, from our communities and how we live in and contribute to society as a whole. For churches, leaders and for parents who are serious about Jesus' commission to make disciples, a socio-ecological approach is foundational. Understanding people in context is important. We need to develop um, better understanding and um, approaches to discipleship that diagnose and equip and treat the whole person. And in this framework, discipleship cannot be reduced to a bunch of personal habits or universal programs. It becomes about a way of life together. The starting point for answering the question, how would discipleship happen, is to realise that discipleship doesn't occur in isolation, that humans exist in context and in relationship. Here's a bit of an exercise for you uh, with the person that is around you. I don't know how comfortable you are with this, but I don't actually care. So uh, what is your definition of discipleship? And that's a big word. It's a jargon word, and it might, you might have no understanding. So what is your definition of discipleship? This is one of my favourite questions to ask pastors and leaders, and it's not a rhetorical or a trick question, though. The look on their faces often suggests that that's the case, that I'm trying to catch them out. Uh, But I've met pastors that can provide uh, a comprehensive overview of premillennial dispensationalism, which, you know, don't even worry about that, but they don't have a working definition of discipleship. The first step towards um, equipping the whole person to follow Jesus in context is to have a shared definition of discipleship. And for me, taking a leadership team and a church through this process is incredibly powerful. Helping them to clarify what it means to follow Jesus and to develop a shared language, expectations and patterns of life that reflect this. This shared vision uh, and definition should then also be the lens through which you develop strategies and the way in which you measure fruitfulness. For me, a shared definition of discipleship begins by wrestling with the cyclical nature of following Jesus. What do I mean by that? Different cultures relate to time differently. And for many civilizations around the world and throughout history, people have understood time as cyclical. Life as a rhythm. The beat of the sun as it rises and falls. Uh, The chorus, uh, seasons coming and going like a chorus. In cyclical cultures, time isn't a scarce commodity because it comes around again. Death is not seen as the end but as a new beginning. 
Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. For those immersed in this Western cultural moment, a linear understanding of time can be a major roadblock to following Jesus. Because discipleship is a cycle. It's an invitation to see, follow, and become like Jesus together. This is my definition of discipleship. It's an invitation to see, follow, and become like Jesus together. The cycle of discipleship starts with an invitation to see where God is at work, to encounter God. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, My Father is always at his work. The Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. This emphasis on seeing or on encounter extended to the way that Jesus invited people to be his disciples. We had that this morning in our passage. Come and see, he said. And in Luke's account, it was when the first disciples see the abundance of fish that flowed from their obedience to Jesus that they left everything and followed him. Paul's life of discipleship began with an encounter of Jesus on the road to Damascus. This appearance, this encounter of the risen Jesus was central to what Paul received and what he passed on. And it's this ongoing cycle with inflection points, isn't it? Seeing, following, seeing, following, that grows exponentially. Each new cycle begins with seeing. Think about this exponential growth. Um, The the Gentile inclusions in the spread of the gospel began with Peter's vision, with Peter seeing. And in Antioch, it was when Barnabas saw the evidence of God's grace that he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord. If Jesus invited people to come and see, why have we adopted the practice of telling people to sit and listen? From Sunday school to small groups, we are well rehearsed in the art of telling people to sit and listen. An invitation is empowering. An invitation offers an opportunity to be God's people on the go with Jesus. Everywhere, our neighbourhoods, our families, our workplaces, the playground, everywhere with Jesus. And this is equally an invitation uh, for those who already follow Jesus as those who don't yet. So how do you know who to extend an invitation to? Look for a person of peace, a person whose whole self is engaged with you, their head, their heart, and their hands. Missionaries and church planters use uh, the term persons of peace when they talk about finding someone who is open and receptive. And often a person of peace is is a gateway to other friends and relatives and social networks. Think about uh, the centurion, the Samaritan woman, the Philippian jailer. So how do you identify a person of peace? There we go. Excellent. For me, it's three things, head, heart, and hands. They are interested in you and they want to know more about you. They like you and they want to spend time with you and they assist you or they serve you in some way. Let me give you an example. If we had time, I could give you a few. I'll just give you one Liam uh, rocked up to our church, having just moved back from Sydney, completing his second degree by the age of 27. Typical millennial. Over the years, Liam had had a casual relationship with the church, but he knew a few people in our community. 
So he, he, he rocked up. And the next uh, following week, we caught up for coffee, and I listened to his dreams for life. But what was different about Liam is that he wanted to know mine. He was interested in me. He wanted to know about my family, my job, my, my dreams. And he began turning up to church earlier and earlier, helping me to set up chairs in the PA system. So Liam wanted to, one, know about me, two, spend time with me, and three, serve me. Liam was a person of peace, or as I like to call it, a mop, because he was a millennial of peace. So I invited Liam into a mentoring relationship, which turned into an internship that turned into a pastoral position with our church. And within three years, Liam had uh, completed his Masters of Divinity, which, yes, for those playing at home, is his third degree. Um, And he was in the pathway for ordination. And it was a series of discipleship conversations that helped Liam see where God was at work and propel him into the mission of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to a small group of followers, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To see, to encounter, is to witness, to speak of. You can only witness to what you've seen. No one stands up in a courtroom and tells someone else's story. That's hearsay. That's inadmissible. The court won't accept your story, your testimony, if it's someone else's experience. You can only witness to what you've seen. When Barnabas saw the evidence of God's grace amongst the Gentiles in Antioch, he went to speak of it to Paul. Immediately after accepting Jesus' invitation to come and see in the passage that we had read for us this morning, um, we see that Andrew found his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. To see is to witness, to speak of. This brings the personal experience, the personal encounter of God's grace into the communal, the space that we occupy together. Because you cannot follow Jesus in isolation. Even though in the West we have tried really hard to make faith a personal, private matter, discipleship and life on mission is a communal activity. Jesus' model of discipleship was simple and brilliant. It worked on the go and it empowered people in every sphere of life. It wasn't reliant on a big budget or a captivating speaker. The way Jesus discipled people continued to meet them where they were at and propel them into the mission of God. And here is the key. It was able to be reproduced by the most ordinary folk. Jesus invited people to see, follow, and become like him through the art of conversation. Lots of little exchanges and big ones that help people see where God is at work and join him. A survey by the Prince's Trust found 22% of 16 to 25-year-olds in the UK didn't feel they had anyone to talk to about their problems when they were growing up. That's a lot, isn't it? We've lost the art and practice of conversation. As one commentator says, although studies on whether the quantity of face-to-face conversation in today's society is in decline are inconclusive, So we don't know if we're having less conversations, but what we do know is that the quality of interaction has unanimously taken a hit. 
It's clear our habit of communicating via social media, emails and dating apps is promoting a lack of empathy and increasing mental health issues. The decrease in communication skills is well documented. A recent UCLA report uh, suggested children's social abilities decline as they prioritise virtual communication over face-to-face -face interaction. A 2015 study from Pew Research Centre saw 82% of adults felt the way they use their phone in social scenarios was detrimental to conversation. Who's got a phone on them right now? Pull it out. 82% of adults felt the way they use their phones in social scenarios was detrimental to conversation. Another study from Virginia Tech found the very presence of a phone had a negative impact on the level of connection just by it sitting there. Whatever generation you represent, as a society, we need to rediscover the art and practice of conversation. We need to unlearn, learn and model healthy communication beyond the screen. In particular... We need to learn how to have conversations that meet people where they're at and propel them into the mission of God. For me, I talk about this as discipleship conversations. Discipleship conversations are about revelation and response, seeing and following. Proverbs 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction." A revelation, an encounter of where God is at work, precedes and enables a response. A discipleship conversation is developed, um, I think, around three variations, sorry, around different variations of three key questions. There we go. One, where is God at work? Two, what do you need to let go of or take up to join him? Three, who would be encouraged to hear of this? The first question is designed to help people see where God is at work. You could also ask someone, where is God in this situation? If you're speaking to someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, you could actually substitute the word God for love because God is love. You could talk, when you're talking with someone, talk about where is love in this situation? Other variations of this question that I use um, in everyday life is uh, helps people to see where God's reign is being realised or where God's reign could be realised. So I might ask someone, uh, where could justice be realised? Where could reconciliation be realised? Where could forgiveness? Where could peace? Because that's what God's reign looks like. Once someone can see where God is at work, they have an opportunity to respond and join him. And to facilitate a response that enables someone to follow, I ask them that really simple question, what do you need to let go of? And, and or like, what do you need to take up? What do you need to stop? What do you need to start doing to join with God? And this two-part question is based on what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To join God and follow Jesus, there is this rhythm of letting go and taking up. When Peter saw Jesus in the midst of the wind and the waves, standing on the water, he needed to let go of fear and embrace faith. 
in order to follow. With every new revelation, there's going to be thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that we're going to need to let go of. And there's going to be other thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that we're going to need to take up in order to be obedient. And a discipleship conversation is designed to continually meet people where they're at and propel them into the mission of God. Following the revelation of the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus, the disciples hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the others, it is true. The third question in a discipleship conversation is designed to initiate a new discipleship conversation, which spreads the good news through the practice of witness. When a person gains a revelation of where God is at and decides to take up their cross and follow Jesus, prompting them with the simple question, who would be encouraged or who would be blessed to hear of this, starts a new cycle and the growth is exponential. So as you continue next week in your series about encounters with Jesus, let me encourage you, encounters matter. Because for you this morning, tomorrow, each and every day, it is about seeing where God is at work and joining him in which you will experience life in the kingdom of God. You will see relationships restored. You will see hope in the midst of despair. You will see joy where there is sadness. And you'll be able to tend to the presence of God. Can I pray for us this morning? Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified in all that we do and who we are. Father, we long to see your kingdom come and your will be done, not our own. We long to be people um, who see peace and wholeness and forgiveness and justice and reconciliation in our own lives and in the lives of our society as a whole. And to that end, we want to give ourselves. So, Father, may we see where you are at work. May we tend to your presence. May we have conversations, God, that um, meet people where they're at and propel them into your mission. And we pray these things in your name so that you may be glorified in everything. Amen.